Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Future in Review podcast. I'm Barrett Anderson, the COO of Future in Review. Now, for those of you who have never heard of us before, we run the annual FIRE conference, which The Economist has called the best technology conference in the world. The other arm of our business, Strategic News Service, provides its subscribers with the most accurate source of information about the future of technology and the global economy. If you enjoy these uh, video podcast updates, you can sign up for a membership of SNS using the link below. And today I am here with Evan Anderson, who is the CEO of Invent IP, our initiative focused on nation-sponsored intellectual property theft. And we are going to be talking about X-shoring, offshoring, friendshoring, reshoring, whatever you want to call it. Evan's latest global report was about this phenomenon. So Evan, um, your piece, you've written a lot, a lot of your work over the years has focused on why investing all of your supply chain in China is a, is a bad idea. And this is finally coming to light more broadly, I think, for a lot of companies, the importance of this. Um, can you talk about what were the things that made China so attractive in the first place and how those dynamics have changed today? Yeah, so, um, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I've been talking to folks for a long time about this, but it, it did make sense. Um, in many ways that the policies that the Chinese government was using to foment more industrial, um, you know, shifting of manufacturing and industry to China were working. Um, and that's in part kind of what this piece is about, um, although we, you know, then delve into who else um, is capable of doing that and who else could be a factory floor. But the things that they did did work and it, it was attractive to business. And that makes sense um, in a lot of different ways context, but the kind of the key aspects um, that make some, you know, specific country a good place to be manufacturing were all there. So they did have a stable government that was extremely supportive of international business moving in. Um, they had, you know, problematically strong rule of law, not when it comes to IP protection, as many people who've watched some other things that we put together and, and read some of my work know. Um, but in terms of protecting infrastructure and, and protecting, um, you know, actual physical interests, right? So um, that's obviously really critical. And around the world, there's plenty of places where you could try to set up some sort of manufacturing facility. But if there's not, you know, a strong enough rule of law that, you know, people can't just come and immediately rob your factory, then you're not going to be able to get much done. And so that was an obvious um, point where, where you had this country uh, that was able to actually protect your business interests on the ground temporarily, even if they're stealing your IP in the meantime. Um, and then they had a, obviously a very large workforce with low wages um, and they b had massive infrastructure build outs, right? We all kind of saw that that was part of the rise of China as an industrial power. So the government pumped amazing amounts of money into infrastructure build outs. And it was a way for them to also kind of pump up their GDP numbers. Um, but that's also critical for manufacturing, right? You need stable power sources. You need roads and bridges and transportation infrastructure that can both move products um, that are inputs to production into your factories and then move the finished products out and ship them off around the world. Um, as we all probably know at this point, China has massive port infrastructure by far exceeding everyone else's. And that was another part of their huge build outs of infrastructure that's necessary. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about ports, et cetera. Uh, and then a system for land ownership and development um, was also critical. And they had that not um, in a way that advantaged anybody who usually was pre-existing on any piece of land, but local governments in China absolutely could seize land from poorer people and then proceed to, uh, you know, sell it to business and, and 
build on it and create factories. So have those things changed? Yes, many of them have. So um, when it comes to infrastructure, those things aren't going away anytime soon. China obviously still has all of that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, like most countries at this point, they're probably going to begin experiencing increasing amounts of issues uh, with climate change. So you can kind of add that in as a factor. In fact, when we looked at the index, we also looked at that. Um, but the infrastructure is there now. That's not going anywhere. What's changing most importantly by far is one, wages have increased. Two, geopolitical instability is now a massive risk. And even if you ignore all you know potential talk about conflict in the Taiwan Strait, et cetera, it's no longer clear to businesses, I think, at all that the Chinese government has any of their interests in mind, right? So I think it's more clear than ever that not only as we've talked for years um, and, and discussed for years about not only are, is your IP not safe, but even if you're in basic manufacturing, there's not really any clear indication that the Chinese government has anything to say to you if, for instance, there are COVID lockdowns and they just shut down your business for three years. Um, so a lot of those supply chain issues that we had during the pandemic, I think were a strong wake up call um, to businesses that, you know, at, at the end of the day, the government there doesn't really care if your business succeeds or not, or does well or not. It's, it's got nothing to do with <clears> probably know, combined also with, I mean, I think well, one of the things we've seen recently is that aspect became very clear during the pandemic. Um, but that is combined with an increasing kind of global political instability where it's more and more people are waking up to the fact that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's alliance with Russia is not, those are kind of the, very similar things, right? Yeah, in many ways, the um, the lack of trust that now exists uh, for the Chinese government itself around the world is completely self-generated on their part, right? So the policies of Xi Jinping's government have directly led to a massive drop in trust in the global business community that the government will maintain peace and stability of any kind, that the government will maintain, you know, a, a way for you to even do business, mm -hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. So all those things have piled up quite a bit now. Um, but more importantly than almost anything else, I would say, um, when it comes to the decision about whether to stay in China long term, I think a lot of companies these days are also waking up to the demographic decline of the country. And a lot of really smart people have talked about that. I don't have to get too deep into it, but um, all you have to do is Google it, right? Um, but what used to be one of the world's largest labor forces waiting to come into factories and work, for instance, um, is now a, a labor force in decline. And that's a huge, huge deal. Um, it's very difficult to maintain manufacturing, for instance, at all, if you have a consistently declining labor force. And so you just add all these other things onto that. But in the long term scheme of things, that's a huge deal when it comes to wages, but it's also a huge deal when it comes to the country's ability to even keep running things. Um, and when you look at a decline that that we're looking at in China, it's the amount of you know reduction in the workforce is just going to be stupendous, particularly starting you know a few years out from now. And so I so, think if you're go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say all of those things aside, yeah. One of the things that is hardest to to repeat um, that the China has done so well is the efficiency and precision of manufacturing very complicated technological systems. Um, and I'm curious in your research, 
if you found, you know, other countries with workforces that are set up to do that. I mean, for example, look at Apple, right? They're trying to move a lot of their supply chain into China now. They're kind of screwed, in my opinion, because it's going to be quite a while before they're able to do that fully for this you reason. Out of, out of China. Yeah, I'm sorry, into yep. India. Did I say China? Mm -hmm. So out of China in, into India. And, but but they're not even close to being able to do that fully because it takes years to reproduce those systems. Um, and I'm curious, like in your research, you know, you've, you've looked into in your report, you lay out 10 different countries that are that are competitors and, and um, or potential other places to base your supply chain. But which of those did you find would be most? Yeah, that's a complex question, because I would say that there's two important things there. Um, for high tech manufacturing, you've got a very different set of requirements than for low tech manufacturing, right. which is part of what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. um, so part of what we looked at was not necessarily um, split by those categories. It was more overall suitability. But if you're in high-tech manufacturing, you could look at the index that we created and very quickly go, oh, okay, I see. Um, you know, This place has a large labor force and low mm -hmm. wages, and that's why it got this kind of score. But there are also places that have uh, more skilled labor forces and higher wages. They tend to go together, unsurprisingly. And that would be the kind of thing that you would look for is some sort of middle ground if you're trying to do higher tech manufacturing. Now, in terms of it, in the immediate, no matter what, it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of trouble to, you know, create a whole new facility and train a whole new staff in a new country. Um, mm -hmm. So you cannot, you know, assume that it will be cheap to move manufacturing. But I highly doubt that anybody who's in the process was assuming that in the first place. Right. It will it will be difficult. But if you're looking at a 10-year story, then it's probably the right choice right now. And so the question is, what, who has the capability of doing everything that you need them to do? And if you're in high tech, can you retrain those workers? Are there well-educated people there? Right. So that was my question to you, but I didn't hear the answer. Um, so we do, that. that is not how our index scores um, generally, but we do have categories within our category of labor, specifically focused on the education of the workforce, wages, et cetera. Would and which countries do you think are most advanced in those categories? Yeah. So um, one of the countries that we looked at was Brazil. And one of the ways that it fell down comparing to other countries on the index is the exact kinds of things that you're saying, you know, might might be interesting if you're going into higher tech manufacturing. Another obvious category or obvious country for this would be Mexico, which has mm -hmm. made a number of different components in the past. And in fact, I think lost a fair amount of market share to China. So I think a lot of companies that are interested in higher tech are looking at, you know, moving right back to Mexico and doing what they were doing in the past. Um, and, and one of the things that we discussed too in the piece is that Mexico has the advantage of, you know, it lacks like really, really large port systems. Um, some countries have, you know, bigger port infrastructure, but Mexico has the advantage of if you're looking for the North American market, which many companies are, you're there, right? right. Um, and so that's kind of an obvious choice in that case. And, and that's a perfect example, in fact, of a country that would score lower on this index but if you had that specific case and you wanted to make some sort of electric electronic component and you were selling into the U.S. market, then it would be an obvious yes, right? So, okay, so Brazil and Mexico might be good options for, for high tech. Yeah, Malaysia is another one. Malaysia. Malaysia very often came up as, um, for our purposes, scoring lower on um, availability of like large pools of labor, um, higher on education, higher on wages, um, higher on lots of different um, infrastructural aspects because Malaysia is more developed by far. Um, mm -hmm. 
but in that case, right? So if you're trying to manufacture something a little bit more high tech for particularly for the Asian market, but Malaysia does have decent port systems as well, um, then Malaysia would be a, a better choice. And the Philippines, um, by the way, which comes up very often is sort of somewhere in the middle. Okay. I was going to about to ask about them next. Mm -hmm. um, so you made a, a top a list of top 10 countries to compare. Who came out on top of that list and why and for which reasons? Yeah, and we kind which of actually, of yeah, we actually have already gotten into this. So um, it'll be an easy transition. But essentially, the countries that came out on top of our list, um, we, this was for broad, like I said before, broad spectrum manufacturing. So we actually weighted the size of the labor force, um, lower wages, et cetera, um, higher in our index. So India actually came out on top, which is not surprising if you're weighting labor force because India is, is well positioned, um, I think, as many people know to be a huge potential replacement for the size of China's labor force. Right. No one else even really compares, right? Um, there's some countries that are more in the middle. So Indonesia comes up in the middle where they fall down on a lot more of those infrastructure uh, scorings, right? Um, you, you won't have quite the same level of infrastructure, et cetera, uh, but they do actually have a large labor force. Um, so in general, the people that came out on, the countries that came out on top um, were did tend to be more um, able to provide a very large labor force. Um, but there was also some kind of other interesting aspects, I think. Um, one of the most interesting things that I realized while doing this is that Egypt is a competitor, a strong competitor in many ways. Um, they do have the port infrastructure. They do have a reasonably large labor force. So I think it's things like that that people would get the most out of, right? If you're kind of doing what you were you were imagining and you're putting yourself in the position or you are in the position of trying to reshore or exshore, right? Friendshore or reshore, uh, move things around. You're trying to do a cost comparison and try to understand the basic lay of the land. Uh, that's, that's where this comes in helpful. Um, there are kind of some other interesting tidbits. We actually looked at Morocco mostly because of the port infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ways that we were selecting countries out uh, was just sort of a, a laundry list of things that would be prohibitive, including, you know, massive corruption, lack of any sort of port or transport, transportation infrastructure, et cetera. Um, and so Morocco got a look. And one of the interesting things about Morocco is that it has a small labor force. It's not a very large country. Um, it's well positioned to um, in, in the infrastructure department, uh, but they actually have a really uh, tough battle ahead of them in terms of higher education. And so if you were looking to manufacture really high tech goods and ship them to Europe, it actually would be some, you know, for some folks, a, a good place to start looking. But you might quickly run into the problem that there are not enough local folks with the type of university education required to help you run your factory, et cetera. Uh, Got it. So, so more from the management perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different considerations there, particularly if you're, you know, depending on the level of high tech. Right. Uh, and in fact, you know, we're going to report soon on another piece where that kind of comes in where we're talking about chips which is as high tech as it could possibly be in the manufacturing industry so what was what was the biggest surprise that you came across in doing this work and this research like what is the thing that you wouldn't have if you're thinking about transitioning your supply chain or your labor force your manufacturing what would you need to think about that you maybe I wouldn't think about? Um, I think the biggest surprise to me, it's not even a surprise as much as it is something that um, tends to fall by the wayside in, in average discussions, including, 
you know, case in point, I've just been talking so much about labor. Um, one thing that we included was a um, set of different parameters for climate change. And that is a new dynamic that people are going to have to deal with. And, and one thing that became very obvious here is um, electricity supply is extremely important hmm. if you're going to be running any type of manufacturing <laughs> process. Um, we included electricity and access to water right at the top of our index for that reason. Um, the question mark unknowns of climate change and how they will affect electricity um, are very quickly going to be just as relevant as any geopolitical concern, right? So right now, um, we've just been through a year in which the conflict in Ukraine and, uh, you know, a number of other different factors have completely rejiggered the global energy markets. And that's been a big deal. And it has had everyone thinking about electricity. But it's easy to forget that, you know, every month we have some different form of news from some different part of the world where the electricity supply has been compromised by something that can be more or less attributed pretty easily to climate change. And so um, when it comes to India, for instance, that I think is the biggest story. I think India is really well positioned to become an obvious replacement for China. Many companies are already doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but India's biggest challenge by far, and I think the government is well aware of it, and they talk about it often, is going to be where does the electricity come from to, to do an expansion in manufacturing capacity of the type and size needed if you want to be a you know, legitimate alternative. And so um, in that context, and given what's going on right now, I think we're going to see massive solar build, build outs, but we will also see, and I think the Indian government has said a little bit about this, I think they'll keep you know, building more coal plants at the same speed because otherwise they won't be able to produce enough electricity. It was already an issue, but if they're taking on the manufacturing capacity of even some you know, percentage of what China's right, been doing, China. they, will, they will need an immense amount of electricity. So I think they're aware of it, but the real question is how will it play out? Will it work? Will they have programs that actually work? Will they be able to build capacity fast enough? And then for the sake of all of us in this world, the next question of course will be, can we get enough renewable electricity around the world to continue? manufacturing things at the rate we have. And that's, I think, a very interesting question. It, in fact, it is the reason that we've been focused on that for the last year. Indeed. At Future in Review. All right, Evan, thank you very much. This is a very interesting conversation. If you want to read Evan's full report and full analysis of all 10 countries, you can become a subscriber to Strategic News Service at the link below this video. Hope to see you there.